Welcome to the Piedmont Arts Podcast, presented by WDAV and powered by Ortho Carolina. This is Frank Dominguez for the WDAV Piedmont Arts Podcast, and this time I have two guests, both performing in the next Charlotte Symphony Classical Series concert at the Belk Theater, Friday and Saturday, 7.30 p.m. It's a program of Mozart and Beethoven, and the two musicians who join me now are exceptionally well-qualified to speak about those composers and their music. It's my pleasure to welcome guest conductor Hugh Wolfe and pianist Robert Levin. Welcome, gentlemen. My pleasure. Thank you. I have a question for both of you. Uh, these concerts consist of repertory with which you're both really closely associated, which you've performed in concert many times and, and on recordings. What are the challenges for each of you in interpreting these works, given that audience members are going to come bound to come with certain expectations and preconceived notions? Let's, let's start with you, Maestro. Wolf. Ooh, that's a big question. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I find, as you say, these are old friends for me, these pieces. Um, for the Mozart Serenade and the Beethoven Symphony, I brought material that I own that the orchestra's playing from. So I feel like it's pretty easy to get in right there in, in depth with the orchestra right away. They've been wonderfully responsive. And uh, I think we've got a sense of style that's, that's good, that's appropriate. And I'm looking forward to the audience reacting to what we're doing. It's hard to know, of course, in advance, but uh, the rapport on stage and the feeling uh, pre- preparing this music has been really fun. Wonderful. And how about you, Mr. Levin? Well, I grew up with these pieces, too, and uh, the A Major Concerto is one of Mozart's most uh, beloved works. Its heartbreaking middle movement is something very, very special, and it influenced Beethoven, the other composer on this program, in his Hammerklavier Sonata, who wrote a slow movement in the same key, in the same meter, with the same features. But uh, my, my feeling is that when Mozart performed these pieces, they were anything but classics. The audience didn't go to concerts to hear pieces they knew. They came to hear pieces that they had never heard before. They didn't want to hear music that they had heard before. It was like top 40. And so uh, the idea of the piano concerto was based on a feeling of spontaneity and off-the-cuff kind of, of execution. Uh, there was improvisation all the way through uh, Mozart accompanying the orchestra in the so-called Tutti passages and decorating his sparsely notated text in the movements themselves. And when it came to cadenzas, the place where the orchestra pauses and the soloist has a go at it, he would always improvise. And so I'm doing all of those things too. So anyone who knows the piece very well will notice that there are a lot of notes that they haven't heard before. And if mm-hmm. they come to the second performance, they'll hear other different notes, because none of this is prepared. Wonderful. Uh, I will come back to you and talk more about the cadenza and improvising those cadenzas. But first, I want to talk about uh, the piece that opens the program, which is the post-horn serenade. And Hugh Wolf, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about the serenade form in general and Mozart's post-horn serenade in particular. Well, the Post-Horn Serenade, uh, I think it was written when he was about 23 for an academic festival in Salzburg. Um, it has seven movements, and we're playing only four. And you think, well, how do you dare do something like that? Well, it turns out that in Mozart's time, serenades functioned as kind of music that you could <laughs> you could cut and paste as much as you wanted for whatever occasion you happened to be wanting the music. And if it was a party and you wanted four movements instead of seven, that was perfectly all right. And I think there's even evidence, I think, that Mozart himself did the four movements that we're doing. Indeed. And I give it the name the Post-Horn Symphony, which Mm -hmm. it isn't. It isn't actually a symphony, but it becomes the shape of a symphony when you take these four movements. Uh, 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 An exciting, fast, allegro first movement, another deeply felt minor key slow movement, 
a minuet in which the post horn is featured and then a very spirited finale. So that's the shape of a standard four-movement symphony, and it works really well that way. And I think Mozart himself used his serenades and his symphonies in this fashion. They weren't uh, the works that we think of today as sacrosanct and had to always be performed in a certain way. Now, Robert Levin, you started to define cadenza a little bit for us and to tell us about your approach to improvising those. So tell us some more. Well, a cadenza is, that's a, an Italian word which means cadence. It means a phrase ending. And what happens is that there's a, a kind of a formula that ends pieces and ends phrases. And he presses the pause button artificially in the middle of that and creates through uh, a, a vertical structure which is a bit uh, dissonant, a sense of expectation. And into that breach jumps the soloist, either a, a singer uh, or uh, one or more instrumentalists. For the singers, the rule was that you were not supposed to sing a cadenza that was longer than you could do in a single breath. That's violated by most, most uh, vocalists today, but we have plenty of evidence of that in treatises of the time. Uh, for Mozart, of course, these piano concertos were designed uh, as vehicles for his own uh, expression as an improviser, as a performer, and as a composer. Uh, and actually in the opposite order, that is to say, people were quite impressed with his compositions, amazed by his virtuosity as a player, but absolutely astounded by his uh, virtuosity as an improviser. And of course, two-thirds of that reputation is not available to us anymore because we don't have CDs of Mozart performing in Vienna in the 1780s. So the idea is here that you will uh, try to perpetuate the sense of expectancy generated by the orchestra stopping in the middle of this little formula and parlay it into uh, an energetic uh, recall, perhaps, of some of the tunes that we've heard in, in the movement, uh, but making them less, uh, how shall I say, less stable and more explosive until it, it culminates in a trill that begins that brings the orchestra back in, and that's that's the end of the of the movement. And when Mozart uh, allowed his pupils to play these concertos or wrote them for for them, he wrote out cadenzas for for them, usually on separate pieces of paper. Uh, but he didn't need those. In fact, he writes to his sister, who was a wonderful pianist but couldn't improvise, saying, I'm sending now the cadenzas uh, uh, to, and he names a particular concerto, I'm sorry it's taken me so long, but you see when I play this piece, I just play the first thing that comes into my head. <laughs> and that's what I do too, as audiences here in Charlotte will find out. And I understand, if I'm understanding correctly, that apparently audience members are going to be able to suggest themes. Is that correct? That's a standalone improvisation that will happen right after the intermission. The idea is that I'm going to do what Mozart did regularly in his concerts, which is to improvise a free fantasy. In this case, it's, I want to improvise a free fantasy in the style of Mozart, so everybody knowing how Mozart's supposed to sound will know whether I'm doing it well or badly. But there's a credibility factor. How does the audience know that I haven't just composed something and memorized it and foisted it on them as if I had improvised it? And the answer to that question is, they will write the tunes. So when I come out with Maestro Wolf to play the concerto in the first half, I'll take a microphone and explain to them that there will be slips of paper on which they can write tunes that can either be by Mozart or sound like Mozart and sign their names. And they will be collected by an usher in the foyer. When I come back out on stage after intermission, uh, the usher will come from the back of the hall to the front, hand me the receptacle, and I'll start drawing tunes and playing them. Um, if the tunes seem... Lottery. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> if the tunes sound good, 
and sound stylistically convincing, you know, no Beatles, no Berlioz, no, you know, Shostakovich and so on and so forth, or Gershwin, uh, then I will put them on the music rack, ask the person who wrote the, the tune to stand up so everybody knows that there's a real person who did this, and choose maybe three or four tunes, and they will be the object of a free fantasy. Now, depending on the keys that are arbitrarily drawn, I might have to uh, take us on excursions from one tonality to something which is far flung. If it turns out they're all in C major, well, you know, that's, that's my luck. So <laughs> the whole thing is going to be uh, quite random, but that will prove to the audience that there's no way that I could have prepared that in advance because they will be hearing these tunes all the way through the piece. And so uh, it's, it's a way of bringing us together and understanding that, that they could come to another performance I might give of K488, but they will never come to another performance in which a fantasy which sounds like that on those tunes will ever be performed. Yeah, it definitely sounds like a very unique... Uh, a nice high-wire act, too. Absolutely. It's, I've, I've watched this happen, and it's really fun. Uh, let me ask you, too, uh, uh, Maestro Wolf, about, uh, in addition to the Mozart, we're also going to get to hear the Beethoven First Symphony, which isn't performed nearly as regularly as uh, some of the later ones. So what are the features of that symphony that an audience will find particularly interesting or engaging? Well, I think it's, it's of course, Beethoven's first opportunity to show himself stretching beyond Mozart and Haydn. And right from the very first note, which is, uh, uh, in technical terms, it's a note in the wrong key, and then followed by another note in the wrong key, he's already breaking all the rules and and, uh, showing the audience a certain kind of virtuosity about who he was and what you could expect from him. And I think it it pushes... I mean, of course, the late Haydn symphonies are extraordinary masterpieces as well, but, but this pushes the boundaries in certain ways. In particular, Beethoven was fond of not just writing soft and loud in his music, but writing very soft and very loud, which Haydn and Mozart didn't do as much of. And you get the sense that Beethoven is, is uh, feeling confined and wants to burst the boundaries, wants to break off the shackles of the older tradition and create something that has more drama, more contrast, more intensity. And right away, as a young man, he's he's on his way with the symphony. You'll, I think, you'll really hear that that sense. Finally, I want to have uh, the two of you talk a little bit about uh, the aspect of collaboration. And, and I've been curious: have you collaborated before, either in concerts or on recordings? Oh, sure, yeah, many times, I yes. would say. So, yeah. what's that collaboration like? Knowing the uh, distinctive <laughs> approach that Robert Levin takes to performing. Well, that's you. You raise a good point because having worked with Robert, I now can can kind of predict or. I feel my job as the conductor of the concerto is to make it as comfortable as possible for him. And I think I now have a better feeling of what direction he'll be going and why. And then, and then of course, we can always just talk things over in a very casual and uh, give-and-take sort of way. So over the years, you get to know soloists and you get to know their 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 tendencies, their predilections, their desires. And and it's fun to uh, imagine what he's going to do and then to hear what he's going to do. And, of course, with Robert, those can be very different things on different nights. And that always makes it, as I say, uh, almost... Uh, 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 so unpredictable as to be uh, adrenaline pumping. 
And for you, Robert? Well, I, I revel in volatility. It's, it's been my, <laughs> my stock and trade for, for a very long time. Uh, and uh, there's a kind of a built-in contradiction between the research that I do, in which I really try to find out as much as possible about performing this music as one can possibly learn. Uh, but there is a moment when you have to close every book that you've read and uh, put on your regalia and go out on stage and do something that you've got to do. And I think uh, this uh, sense of spontaneity is a terribly important thing in a world which is shaped by CDs, which are heavily edited, in which uh, mm. everything is, is completely disinfected uh, and predictable. You know, I mean, Dewar's White Label says it never varies. And you can go from Boston to San Francisco and eat only at McDonald's. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, my, my feeling is that the unpredictability, the, the spontaneity, the danger of risk-taking is something that may help uh, at two minutes to 12 uh, secure the continuing enduring future of classical music. And this is not something which I'm doing to the music. Uh, I'm doing something that we know happened. It was part of, uh, uh, of the sense of, of experiencing music in a public forum as it was done in Vienna and all across Europe and later uh, America. Because uh, composers were all performers, and almost all performers were composers. And also the gap between uh, art music and vernacular music was much more narrow than it is today. You know, Mozart writing the magic flute, you know, when Papageno sang his, his arias, they sounded like folk tunes. You know, this was not just something for the barons and the emperor and the, and the princes. This was something for the blacksmiths and the greengrocers. They came and they felt that Mozart was one of them. And I think we need to come back to that kind of, of spirit more and understand that as a performer, you can look at the music and understand not only what happens, but what might have happened, what could have happened, and what in a cadenza could actually happen. And the audience can tell that everything about the performance is exciting in ways that it isn't when all one is doing is playing with, uh, you know, a certain kind of dignity and respect. And especially in the case of Mozart, you're never supposed to play louder than mezzo forte because that's uncouth. With Beethoven, fortissimo is just fine. People are used to that. But they don't think that Mozart could ever raise his voice or talk in a whisper, which is silly. Well, this has been fascinating, and I'm so grateful to you for taking time out of your busy schedules to speak with us. Uh, my guests have been conductor Hugh Wolf and pianist Robert Levin. Both will join the Charlotte Symphony Orchestra in the Belk Theater on Friday and Saturday to perform in a concert of Mozart and Beethoven. My thanks to our colleagues at WFAE for the use of their Spirit Square studio for this interview. For the WDAV Piedmont Arts Podcast, I'm Frank Dominguez. This has been the Piedmont Arts Podcast, presented by WDAV and powered by Ortho Carolina. Subscribe to this podcast at wdav.org slash subscribe. And follow us on Facebook for classical music news, humor, and programming updates. WDAV is a service of Davidson College supported by listeners like you. Find us on the radio at 89.9 FM and HD1, streaming at wdav.org, or on our mobile app, available at Google Play and the iTunes App Store. Thanks for listening.